Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host and the president of the Trinity Forum, Cherie Harder. Our desire is to help you wrestle with and reflect on the big questions of life. Like, why are we here? What does it mean to be human? And what is the good life? We lean on the best of the Christian intellectual tradition and elevate the thought leaders, both ancient and modern, who best grapple with these questions and direct our hearts towards the author of the answers. Throughout this, our second podcast season, we've been releasing groups of episodes thematically to allow for a deeper exploration of topics that we believe are both timeless and timely. All of our episodes have been previously recorded and edited for length and clarity, but to listen to any of our conversations in full, just visit our website at ttf.org. Now, as we enter the season of Advent and release this final batch of episodes, we're turning to poets, musicians, and creators to help us explore the paradox of a kingdom that is now, but not yet, of an ageless God and baby in a manger, of a light that has dawned amidst a darkness that persists. Our hope is that these conversations might inspire wonder, kindle hope, and sharpen our longing as we say and sing together, O Come Emmanuel. With that, here's today's conversation. So it is a particular pleasure to get to engage the topic we'll be discussing today, poetry and beauty in solitude. And it is a particular delight to get to do so with my longtime friend and Trinity Forum Senior Fellow, Dana Joya. Dana, is a rock star. He is an internationally renowned poet, literary critic, and essayist, the former chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, poet laureate of California, the publisher and author of more than five full-length poetry collections, which have variously won the Poets Prize and the National Book Award, an active translator of poetry from Latin, Italian, and German, the composer of three opera libretti, and the recipient of more than 10 honorary degrees, and the Aiken Taylor Award for Lifetime Achievement in Poetry. Dana, thanks for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to everyone, especially since it, we really are all having a one-to-one conversation because, you know, people are in their various rooms. Uh, pe- people are in solitude. Uh, and so that, I think, actually makes the conversation more fun and more interesting and, I hope, have some more importance. Absolutely. Well, Dan, just to start right off, I'm sure you've encountered many people, even avid readers, who feel they should love poetry, much the way perhaps that they should eat eat their vegetables, that there's something good in it for them, but there's not a driving hunger there. How did you come to love and to write poetry, and what guidance would you give for those who want to more fully discover and delight in it? Well, uh, falling in love with poetry was easy for me. It just simply happened. Uh, My mother, who was a working class Mexican woman of no great education, loved the poems that she had had to memorize in what they then called grammar school. And so, and she would just recite them unselfconsciously. I mean, she was from that terrible era of education where the repressive teachers made 
poor innocent children memorize poems. I mean, the brutality of that system goes without saying. Uh, nonetheless, these were treasures for my, my mother. And so we would be doing housework together. She, yes, she forced me to do housework with her. Uh, and because she was a working woman, you know, in the 50s, she had a job. And so on Fridays, we would clean the house and she would simply start to recite. She would, you know, say, it was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabelle Lee. And that maiden, she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. And I, at the earliest age, I mean, I, I fell in love with what I have come to, you know, call the enchantment of poetry, which is to say what poetry does, and I don't think people understand this, certainly teachers don't understand this any longer. What po real poetry does is to create an enchantment a state of heightened consciousness and heightened receptivity, a kind of mild hypnotic spell, which allows certain things to transact in, in, in your mind, in your imagination, in your memory. And that is why poetry has a particular power. Now, the reason most people don't like poetry is that they're constantly given bad poems to admire. They're constantly given poems which do not enchant them, which is to say, the poems, you know, however intelligent, well-written, well-crafted the poem is, it doesn't communicate with you. It doesn't reach out, in a sense, bring you into that state of heightened consciousness, heightened sensitivity. And so the two of you are, you know, it's like a relationship where you can't find a common language. And I think because of that, a lot of people assume they do not like poetry. And yet they'll always talk about these great poems they remember you know, uh, reading in high school or perhaps in college. So I think that the, that the, the problem with poetry is a, a version of the problem of the general culture. Our high culture has gone wrong. Our high culture is broken. The uh, ways in which academics and critics talk about the high culture is in many cases broken. And what has happened is it's separated the artist from the audience, uh, the, you know, the art from, you know, the people that it was intended uh, to speak to. What I've tried to do as a poet, as a critic, as a teacher, is to reconnect people to the best of what is being written. You had a very unusual trajectory to become a full-time poet. You, start, you got your MBA, and you actually worked in marketing as a VP for many years before transitioning to poetry. What propelled you to leave a successful job in advertising and marketing with an MBA to go write poems full-time? Well, you, you have to understand the basis of this is that my parents were good people, neglected to give me the private income I so richly deserve. Uh, and so I was forced with the indignity, and I hope that none of the people that were joining us today suffer this way. I was faced with the indignity of having to get a job. And so, you know, at the earliest stage when I realized, actually I was in Vienna, Austria, studying music, when I realized I didn't want to be a musician, I wanted to be a poet. But I had no idea what that meant. What do you do uh, if you're a poet in today's society? Well, there's one common answer. Well, you go, if you're going to want to be a poet, then you go teach poetry, teach poetry writing. So I started off as an academic, you know, at Harvard studying poetry, and I realized I didn't really want to be a professor uh, in an Ivy League university. I mean, it's a wonderful thing, but it wasn't for me. So I had to figure out some way of making a living. 
I had had crappy jobs my whole life. I think my first job was at the age of nine when one of my Sicilian uncles you know, brought me and my cousin to a field and told us to clear the weeds. You know? So I, you know, I knew what it was like to work with my hands. Uh, and so I decided to go to business school. And I figured that I could, T.S. Eliot and Wallace Stevens had both been you know, businessmen who had written poetry. So I figured I could do that. And so for, the, for 15 years, I worked in the corporate world. And I worked about 10 hours a day and I wrote at night. And it worked very well for me. I mean, I, was, I became a very well-known writer. And, but there came a point where I just felt that if uh, money has never been motivating for me. I mean, I want enough money where I, you know, I could pay the bills. I don't have to worry about it because I was raised by people that were full of anxiety about money. And at the end of every month, my parents were quite literally broke. Uh, so I didn't want to be in that situation. But I was very successful as a businessman. But I realized I was now well-known enough that I could simply quit and write full time. Now, ironically, I would say it was better for me as a poet to have a business job because I never had to worry about making a living. Where once I quit and became a full-time writer, I had to worry about making a living. Woo! You know, uh, and so you know, for you know, for a couple of years, I mean, we were really you know uh, skating on thin ice, often falling through. But you know, it worked out, and I started writing, you know, uh, journalism. I worked for the BBC. I wrote for the Washington Post, New York Times. I edited textbooks. I did readings and lectures. And so I became what a man of letters. And that's really what I wanted. I wanted not to be a poet in the narrowest way, but a writer, the core of whose existence was poetry. So why did I quit? To write more and out of misplaced idealism. So we're going to be talking about poetry and beauty in solitude. In poetry, we basically understand what it is, but beauty is a contested concept. So it's probably fitting to start off with definitions. What is beauty? Well, I just did a film uh, that's being broadcast on First Things. And if people haven't seen it, it's 24 minutes long, but I give a kind of detailed explanation of what I think is beauty is and why it matters. And so I would urge them, if they want to explore that, they could, they could look at that. And I don't want to repeat everything that I talked about, but beauty is really quite complicated, but it's also something that all of us uh, have common experience of. And so I think that the easiest way of talking about beauty is to, is to start with what I believe is the universal experience, which is to say, all of us have the experience of just, you know, walking along or sitting along and then just being stopped in our tracks by something that strikes us as beautiful. It could be a tree, a person, a landscape, a painting, a building, but somehow it just makes us say, wait, I've got a paw. So the, the, the experience of beauty is in four stages. The first is what I call the arresting of attention, where we stop in our busyness, our preoccupation, you know, because all of us are walking around with our head full of, you know, worries and ideas and hopes, and suddenly it stops. And the second thing, as we stop, we begin to take pleasure in the thing that we are beholding. And so the arresting of attention, the sense of pleasure. And frequently, it is pleasure that is somewhat disinterested. I mean, uh, I'll be walking you know, by the hillside and it's covered with flowers. 
I don't own the hillside. I don't own the flowers. I'm not even going to pick the flowers, but it just, it just stuns me. Uh, and then out of that arresting of tension, which is, you know, where we st actually stop our busyness and think and take in the world, take in reality, we're filled with this pleasure, suddenly we're given an insight. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example here. Is that, uh, just outside the door of my studio um, are hillsides, which were completely de devastated in the October fires in California. Uh, hundreds of my trees were, you know, I have 20 acres, were destroyed. The ground was burned down, you know, just to this blackened surface. Uh, yet after the winter rains, suddenly everything began to grow. But what began to grow was not necessarily what had been there beforehand. Mm -hmm. So I've got a whole hillside now covered with lupin that's about two feet tall. It's spectacularly blue. And I realize that for decades, the seeds of these lupins were sleeping under the surface of the earth only to be reawakened in the fire. These trees suddenly have shoots coming out of them uh, like the madrones of these things that look almost like a, look like lettuce leaves coming out of the, the, the charred bases. And, and that's an example of the third thing is that your tension is arrested, you get pleasure, and suddenly you get a glimpse, large or small, of the inner workings of reality. Uh, the great uh, th sort of philosopher, theologian, Jacques Maritain said, it's the secrets of existence radiating into the intelligence. And suddenly you, you'll start to see the design of a tree reflects uh, the soil, the sky, the weather around it, that, that there's an interrelationship between all of these things you, you didn't do. And you get this incredible rush of knowledge, of knowledge of how reality operates and then the fourth part of beauty happens, it's over. Uh, which is to say, you know, you can't control it. You are dealing in a sense with a reality, a phenomenon greater than yourself. Now, what does that tell us about the nature of beauty? I think what it tells us about the nature of beauty is what the ancients have told us, what the romantics told us about beauty is that truth is beauty, beauty, truth. Now, it's not that this beautiful thing is all truth, and that all truth is going to create beauty. But the, but the beauty is a means of knowing the world as it really is. Uh, now, Thomas Aquinas had a very elegant three-part um, uh, definition of this. And anybody who's read James Joyce's novel, uh, Portrait of an Artist as, uh, as a Young Man, knows that the, the very end of it is where this artist suddenly, uh, using Aquinas, suddenly understands his life, understands his future for the first time. But, uh, you know, what Aquinas said is you see, uh, you know, I'll translate it because he, you know, he has, you, you see in a sense uh, a beauty, you see, you know, the beauty of the part, then you see the, the way that it relates to the whole. So, you, for example, I see this flower growing on the hill that I've never seen before. I suddenly related to all the flowers on the hill and the scorched earth, and I suddenly understand that, that it's all interrelated. The fire is what has caused this beautiful flower to come back into being after sleeping under the earth for 30 years. So it's the part 
the beauty of the part, the integration of the whole, the, you know, the harmony of the parts uh, making the whole. The, what Aquinas calls it is integritas. Uh, and then the third thing happens, which uh, Aquinas calls claritas, which is not cl clarity, it's radiance. The reality begins to radiate into our intelligence. Now, if you sort of say beauty is all subjective, there, there's no connection between this socially constructed sense of prettiness um, and outer reality, you've essentially put sunglasses on to block the radiance of creation, the radiance of the world. And indeed, our culture has deliberately you know, uh, has taken, you know, cheaters, you know, and put them over their eyes. Academics have for 30 years now maintained that there's no such thing as beauty. It's a social convention determined by race, class, income, uh, gender, a nationality. It's a means of, a, of one group oppressing the other by elevating some things and demoting others. But that completely misunderstands what beauty is, uh, you know, because Beauty is not something that aggrandizes one group of people at the expense of another. Uh, I mean, if you stand at the, at the edge of the Grand Canyon and you look into it, it doesn't say, hey, I'm, that really makes me look a lot better. No, it, the beauty of the Grand Canyon makes everybody uh, actually understand their insignificance amidst the glory of creation. Once again, I hate to, to be habitually quoting Aquinas, but Aquinas once, uh, you know, at one point defines humility as humility is seeing things as they really are. Uh, you know, and you to understand how insignificant all of your wishes and your desires and your ambitions are to the extent of reality. And beauty does the same thing. You know, beauty allows us to see into, at least momentarily and partially, uh, into the harmony of existence, the interrelationship of existence. Beauty depends on our apprehension and our attention. Uh, these are not entirely straightforward. I think about Georgia O'Keeffe saying, to see takes time, like having a friend takes time. How do we learn to see, you know, to, to discern uh, the reality and the beauty that is there? Well, you know, we have to educate our senses. Now, but, now let me, I think I need to back up one thing, which is to say, when you're, when you're we as intellectuals like to, to imagine we think our way rationally to things. We don't. We really don't. So little of what we experience is rational. I mean, you and I, Cherie, in a good week, you perhaps more than me, probably get 45 minutes of true rational thought in. <laughs> Everything else is experiential, which is to say we simultaneously bring things in with our senses, our intellect, our imagination. Uh, we relate them to things in our memory, and all of it's filtered through our physical body. Uh, our physical body even allows us to do rational thinking better some days than, than others. And so what we have to do is not to educate just our intellect, although that's very important. And I'm, you know, uh, you know, I'm first in line saying we've got to you know, make our intellect and our rational capability stronger. But we have to educate ourselves in the completeness of our humanity. Now, 
anybody who's been trained in music, I think has got a good notion of this, or even somebody who's been trained in athletics. You start to, you know, in music, you train your ear, uh, you train your hands, you train your eye to be able to read a score, reproduce it, you know, on a violin or a piano and hear the results. And actually, and if you're a singer, you're singing the results. So you, you have to produce the sound out of your body. And there's this constant dialectic where you refine these things. You do it by playing music, practicing music, listening to music, doing all these things. And so what we need to do is with, in a completely, uh, a complete human way, train our eyes, our ears, uh, our tongues. And out of that, you know, we relate all of these things that our rational mind, our imagination uh, can work with in, in coordination with our memory, with our physical bodies. And that's the hard part because the trouble is our official ed education has become highly intellectual and almost completely disembodied. You know, we are not pure spirits. We are incarnate beings you know, with body and soul. And unless we take the body seriously, uh, we're really overestimating our angelic capabilities. Now, I notice you have made a similar critique, not only the education system, but even of the church. Uh, you wrote in the Catholic writer today at one point that, quote, whenever the church has abandoned the notion of beauty, it has lost precisely the power it hoped to cultivate, its ability to reach souls in the modern world. Current Catholic worship often ignores the essential connection between truth and beauty, body and soul at the center of the Catholic worldview. When did this start happening and what counsel would you give to retain the connection? Well, you know, you know, I'm, I don't know, you know, when it started happening because who could, you know, almost any big trend has multiple causes, but I unfortunately am old enough to have seen some of the breaking points, you know. Now, uh, Catholicism, I think, is the is the test case here, because with Protestantism, you had whole parts of Protestantism that sort of deliberately pulled themselves away from the physical. You know, you think of the ultimate Calvinist uh, or Puritan chapel, where you have whitewashed walls and clear glass, so that you have nothing distracting. You know, the the mind from a direct relationship with God. Uh, you know, the Catholics, uh, however, have always believed in embodied worship. Uh, you know, and that's in the mass where you're literally, you know, eating bread and wine, uh, you know, that have been, uh, have been transubstantiated into the, the body and blood of Christ as part of the service. And you've got incense and bells and candles, all these things that, you know, Puritans just uh, were, were driven nuts by. But what I saw in my own lifetime in the Catholic Church was that we went away from a sense of coming into a sacred space in which all of our senses were involved with music, uh, with ritual, with prayer. Uh, uh, and in, in, once again, I cannot overestimate the importance of architecture itself, paintings, sculptures, draperies, vestments. And we went into a thing where suddenly it was, just became a meeting hall uh, where people mostly talked at us. And, you know, I don't know for other Catholics, uh, but uh, most of what's happened positively to, uh, to me during Catholic worship has not been the sermon. 
uh, <laughs> which is not one of the great Catholic traditions. I mean, you know, sermons are what we listen to as punishment for our sins. You know, they did, you know, but it's, it was the overall sense of a ritual which tried to replicate uh, the final, uh, the Last Supper and the sacrifice of Christ. And that this meditation, which required all of my senses, even my sense of taste, uh, was, once I fully understood it, transformative and sustaining to me. But you have to be able to put yourself in the right frame of mind for this. And if you go into a, a modern church, which is poured concrete, you know, and, uh, you know, with some kind of bizarre design, you know, and you've got bad music, you know, uh, in a kind of ugly space, I don't think it happens. We are weak. We are, you know, we are the, we are the slaves of our senses. So I want to talk at least a little bit about poetry before we go to questions from our viewers. Uh, and one of the things that you said that was quite provocative in the past is that you've argued that an essential power of poetry is to, in your words, purify language. And we're at a time when facts themselves are disputed. We have alternative facts and a whole variety of them. Language is muddied. Our information streams are siloed. Um, people are increasingly, you can almost predict their thinking by their voting behavior. It makes it all the easier to confirm our biases. How, if at all, can poetry purify the language of our time? Well, now the, the, the term of, you know, it's, it's uh, give a sense more pure to the language of the tribe. Comes out of a poem by Mallarmé, which he wrote about Edgar Allan Poe, and then T.S. Eliot brings it into the, the four quartets. And, and I think it's really quite true. A poem, because it is so few words, so few images, has to have absolutely everything work. And when something goes phony, when something, see, you know, the, you know, what Nietzsche said, the poets, they lie too much. Uh, the, in a poem, you could almost always sense where the, where the poet is bullshitting you, where the poet is lying, where the poet is pressing too far, where the poet is faking it. And so I think that the beauty of poetry is that in a way it exists outside the marketplace. It's a, it's a way of pure saying, of pure hearing, of, of pure experiencing, and the words are all naked. You know, if, you know, if the, the word is flabby and overweight, we see it, you know, because you, you can't gussy it up. And so I think that's really what it is. And so we, we see with, with great poetry, is it just clears the space. Do you have a favorite poem of your own that you've composed? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, actually, I, I do, but I, I mean, I, I have three or four favorites. I don't think they're the poems anybody else likes. <laughs> well, why don't you let us be the judge of that and read one of them to us? Well, this is a poem of mine. It's very complicated. It's about, it comes out of two things. It comes out of my sense that what real love is, I mean, I'm talking about real passionate sexual love, uh, is mostly talk. It's a conversation, in a sense, between two people in which everything in their lives begins to wrap around each other. And you know if you're in love with somebody, if nothing is real to you until you share it with that other person. Something happens to you, it's not really real until you link it, until you link your story with that person's story. The other thing 
it was true is that I've known people that have killed themselves. In fact, a dear friend of mine uh, killed himself in December. And what happens is that those people have a, their story comes to an end. They don't know how to take their story forward. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what it made me realize is we live and we love by stories. And that's why literature matters because why literary education matters because if, if we don't have many, many stories that give us all the alternatives of life, uh, we probably don't have what our imaginations need to go forward and to prosper in life. I take the title from Shakespeare who said, the lunatic, the lover, and the poet are of imagination all compact, which means that all three of them are crazy. Uh, and so, and this is written in, in some ways to my wife. Uh, and it's in four stanzas, each of which changes its mood. The tales we tell are either false or true, but neither purpose is the point. We weave the fabric of our own existence out of words, and the right story tells us who we are. Perhaps it is the words that summon us. The tale is often wiser than the teller. There is no naked truth, but what we wear. So let me bring this story to our bed. The world, I say, depends upon a spell spoken each night by lovers unaware of their own sorcery. In innocence or agony, the same words must be said, or the restless moon will darken from the sky, the night grow still, the winds of dawn expire. And if I'm wrong, it cannot be by much. We know our own existence came from touch, the new soul being summoned into life by lust. And love's shy tongue awakens in such fire of flesh on flesh and midnight whispering as if the only purpose of desire were to explore its infinite unfolding. And so, my love, we are two lunatics, secretaries to the wordless moon, lying awake together or apart, transcribing every touch or aching absence into our endless, intimate palaver, body to body, naked to the night, appareled only in our utterance. Thank you, Dana. We're gonna to turn to questions from our viewers and we'll try to get through as many as we can. Our first question comes from Kevin Antlitz, who asked, could Dana comment on the importance of memorizing poetry, especially during times like these when the temptation is to glue our eyes to screens? Memorizing verse was much more prevalent a century ago than it is today, and by and large, a lost art. I wonder if Dana has any suggestions or strategies he's found helpful to entrusting such important works to memory. First of all, poems are written to be memorized. Who is the mother of the muses? The goddess memory. Poetry goes back to a time in our culture before there was writing. 
And so the things that were important needed to be memorized. So unless you're memorizing poems, you're not really entering into the art uh, in, a, in, a, in a true way. Uh, there's any ways of memorizing poems. What I often do uh, is I'll have one or two poems I want to memorize, and I'll just Xerox them on a little piece of paper, uh, and I'll put them in my wallet. That way, when I'm standing in line, I can take them out and, and memorize them. In fact, you know, you, you, Sheree, you know how much I've had to travel in my life. You have no idea how many poems I've, I've memorized at O'Hare, <laughs> you know, where, where it just waits for hours. Now, if you have trouble memorizing a poem, here's how you do it. Walk around. Just walk and say it to yourself. Uh, actors know this trick. Uh, you'll memorize things twice as quickly. Next question. So this question comes from Brad Joya in Nashville, who says, I have been struck by the difference between the terms isolation and solitude in this time of social distancing and stay-at-home orders. Can you discuss the spiritual meaning of solitude? Well, uh, first of all, Brad Joya is not related to me, although I have met him. Uh, he's a, uh, hello, Brad Joya. Uh, well, I think what God gives you uh, is what you need, and it's even if you don't want it, it's what you got. And so it's your uh, choice as to how to receive that. And I think some people think of, you know, of what we have right now is this terrible quarantine, this isolation. But I think properly seen, it is the gift of solitude. We are in this extraordinarily hyperactive world in which everything is accelerated, and we've been given weeks of solitude, of quiet, where we could actually experience life in a different pace. And if you think of solitude, you know, it's in a sense, it gives you the chance to put all of the noise of existence out of the way and see into the reality of yourself and your life and your existence. Uh, I'm very weirdly grateful for this time, despite all the anxieties and all the sorrows. That's great. Okay. So Fritz asked, who are your some of your favorite poets of the past and of the present? Well, as unoriginal as it sounds, William Shakespeare. <laughs> it's a good guy. If you don't know his work, you know, he's, you know watch out for him. He's a comer. Uh, but I, I love Shakespeare. I, I was raised, you know, doing uh, in high school in Latin. And so, uh, you know, some of the Latin poets like Horace, Catullus, and Virgil were among the earliest poets that I read seriously, and I still love them. In English, I love John Donne, from whom I wrote a piece with, for the Trinity uh, Forum, as well as Gerard Manley Hop Hopkins, who I also did another uh, of your little monographs. My, my, in the 20th century, my favorite poet is probably W.H. Auden, a wonderful you know, poet. I love Eliot. Uh, and I love Philip Larkin and Robert Frost. Um, and you know, those are poets. I love Emily Dickinson. Um, so th that's, a, that's a probably enough reading list. Uh, my, favorite, my favorite younger poet in America is a woman named A.E. Stallings, Alicia Stallings. I think she's terrific. So if you want a younger poet to read, you can't go wrong with her. Great. Well, we actually have a question from a younger viewer who, uh, this is Megan Meehan, who is a senior in high school, and she is currently writing her thesis on the necessity of poetry and beauty. And she says, while researching and conversing with my peers, I learned that most of them, though they appreciated beauty, 
found poetry to be something unworthy to write about. Would you say that the reason for this is because they simply have not been exposed to poetry or because not many people care for the kind of beauty which it represents? Well, I think uh, both of those statements are true, but they require some commentary. If you go back into, let's say, 1900 in the United States, poetry was a universally popular art. A poet like Longfellow was not only read by everyone, virtually everyone in the United States would have known some of Longfellow's poems by heart. They probably would have known some of Poe's poems by heart, uh, you know, Whittier and people like this, because there was a relationship between the common person and poetry. And in fact, the poet was thought of the person who best articulated the word, you know, the hopes and aspirations of the common person. During the 20th century, poetry became a kind of elite discourse uh, done largely by intellectuals and by the end of the century, almost entirely by academics. What's happening right now is that poetry is regaining its audience. Poetry is the fastest growing art in the United States by a huge margin. And among younger people, it has doubled its audience in the last 10 years. But that's because people like uh, this young woman are, 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 in a sense, reconnecting with the traditional notion of, of, of poetry. So what I would say to her is that she is in the vanguard and that her generation is going to restore poetry to its rightful place in society. That's great. So this is a fascinating question from Mary Frances Dunlap, who asked, would you please speak to the relationship between beauty and suffering? How might suffering help us anticipate beauty that is to come? Well, if you think of beauty, not as being pretty, being, you know, lovely, but beauty is a, the joy we get from seeing things as they really are, seeing the interconnections of things. What is the most beautiful play in the world? I think it's probably King Lear, which is full of evil and suffering and unbelievable misery. Uh, and the relationship is this. The purpose of poetry is to give us pleasure, to give us wisdom, to give us consolation. Uh, and as we suffer, we begin to see the beauty of things we did not understand before. Uh, you know, right now I'm reading uh, The Idiot by Dostoevsky. You know, what made Dostoevsky a great writer, which turned him in from a kind of just of a journalist into one of the greatest novelists who's ever lived, was his suffering. Uh, but the fact that he was imprisoned unjustly in the gulag, he was actually almost executed, and then he lost two of his four children. He, that allowed him, in a sense, to see the deeper, darker, more encompassing truths, because most of us are not going to look at the uncomfortable truths most of the time. I mean, you could say one of the gifts of the current pandemic is that it has woken people up from the kind of delusion uh, that they have about all of life is under their control, everything's going to be good, life is a series of, of increasingly wonderful consumer choices and uh, you know, types of things to possess, and it allowed us to understand our own mortality better. Uh, to understand the precariousness of our existence. That is a gift to all of the survivors. You know, we will, I hope, never live entirely the same as unconsciously before. So yes, 
the more we suffer, the more we see the beautiful. That's great. So an interesting question from Kashaf Zaman, who asked, do you think the lack of appreciation for poetry in our day and age has negative societal repercussions? If so, what kind? Well, what poetry does, if you think about this, is that it gives us words, in a sense, to understand and express the complexity of our humanity. But our education system is largely intellectual. Mm -hmm. If you educate people with poetry, much of your education is emotional mm -hmm. and imaginative. So we are producing 18-year-olds and 21-year-olds, you know, I'm thinking of high school graduates and college graduates who are emotionally stunted, who, whose imaginations have never been called fully into being and whose powers of articulation are, and I say this as somebody who's been teaching for, <laughs> for the last decade, you know, are limited. Uh, you know, th their ability to express what they're really feeling, what they're going through is so limited. So uh, I think there's a reason that through most of human history, poetry has been one of the building blocks of education. It makes us grow and it gives us the ability to express ourselves. So a question from Joanne Walsh who asked, how does your understanding of beauty differ from C.S. Lewis's understanding of joy? It's been a very long time since I read Surprised by Joy, but your definition of beauty sounds very similar to my recollection of the way Lewis understood joy. Well, let me say something that's, that people should understand. Truth is the possession of no one. To the degree we're getting at the truth, mm -hmm. uh, we are giving us ourselves a common possession. Lewis, uh, you know, is pulling himself actually out of Thomas Aquinas, uh, out of Kant, uh, you know, out of this, you know, the same, you know, people that, you know, that I am. And it's a way of saying this is that in the way that each age needed to understand beauty, it generally found the terms uh, to do so until recently, <laughs> you know, when suddenly we have these intellectual, uh, you know, uh, intellectual saying it doesn't exist, that it's, it, it's a falsehood and things like this. So I think probably what this reader is it Miss Walsh uh, is experiencing uh, is there was a kind of a, a noticeable gap between the generation, you know, of, of C.S. Lewis and, you know, uh, people like me who are trying to revive the necessary uh, connection between truth and beauty that's been denied for about 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. So if I have much in common with, with uh, C.S. Lewis, thank God. <laughs> you know, if, you know, it's not a bad place to be. was do, trying to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Frederick Turner is trying to do the same thing because it, the consequences in our culture of misunderstanding beauty have been catastrophic. So a question from Mary Ellen Bork who asked, how do you think poetry opens the mind to the possibility of religious faith? Is it through the power of beauty? Let me answer this by indirectly. If you asked me, you know, I just, uh, retired as a teacher. I, teaching was not my lifelong profession. For, for a decade, I taught at the University of Southern California. Very bright, vital young students. But the thing that worried me about them more than anything else was that 
I didn't see them developing their inner lives. You know, they're looking at, at their tweets, they're looking at the internet, they're, they have headphones and they surround themselves, they immerse themselves. You could even say they drown themselves in external stimuli. And it allows, it's kind of a narcotic that allows every moment to be mildly pleasant. I think that we need to be alone with our thoughts more. That's why I believe, even though you didn't want to use it as a title, that I thought the quarantine was a gift. <laughs> you know? uh, that, that we need to develop our inner lives, which is a sense to understand ourselves as a separate from the entertainment environment around us. You know, uh, we're not just a consumer, we are, we're, we are a person with a soul. And I think poetry is one of the ways in which we do this, you know, properly construed that it, in a sense to develop our capa spiritual capacity and our self-understanding. And part of that is if you memorize a poem, uh, simply, you know, where is it? It's inside you. When you reproduce it, it's inside you. And you'll know this in the, you cannot memorize something without knowing what it means. Now, that doesn't mean that the meaning that you're giving it is what the author did, but you begin to attach your personal meanings to it. So the very act of memorizing a poem is transformative, expansive, uh, and, you know, individualized. And so I think that we need many ways, and I think poetry and prayer are two things which are very vital uh, to our spiritual well-being. And in both cases, we're on a starvation diet in this culture. Finally, I'd like to, Dana, I'd like to give you the, the final word um, with a poem you'd like to share before we wrap up. I want to end with a poem by Philip Larkin. I chose it because I think it, ex it expresses joy and anxiety that we're experiencing right now. And it takes place literally today. It takes place in May as we see the trees coming into leaf. The Trees by Philip Larkin. The trees are coming into leaf, like something almost being said. The recent buds relax and spread. Their greenness is a kind of grief. Is it that they are born again while we grow old? No, they die too. Their yearly trick of looking new is written down in rings of grain. Yet still the unresting castles thrush in thick grown, full grown thickness every May. Last year is dead, they seem to say. Begin afresh, afresh, afresh. So let's all begin afresh. Cherie, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. And it's a pleasure to talk to all of you in this invisible city that we share for an hour. Thank you for listening. We'd love for you to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations on your favorite podcast platform and to share this episode with a friend. More information on today's programs and show notes are available at ttf.org. Until next time, we wish you the gift of great conversations.